right. Well, we're almost, like I said, at the end of this. Uh, we've been in Psalm 119 most of the summer and uh, just been plugging away for a bunch of time. I think this is the, I don't know, 10th or something part of this particular thing. We had a couple sermons in the mix there uh, that when I was gone for different things, but, but mostly we've been in Psalm 119 and uh, working our way through this really long passage uh, but it's just a really gl- great and glorious passage about the Word of God and the importance of it in our lives. And I've especially enjoyed looking at how Jesus connects to all of these things, uh, which we're going to continue to do here. But I think one of the things that I, I've seen uh, uh, throughout my life in the evangelical church uh, is that a lot of us have a wrong belief um, and it's not a belief in the sense of this is our dogma or our theology or our doctrine, but it's a wrong belief in how we actually practice the Christian faith in thinking that this whole thing, the whole thing about Christianity is about something we do as long as we follow the rules, right? That we, we've, we've basically reduced Christianity to here are the rules, follow them, obey them, do them, and just work really hard, and you're going to get better at it the more you work at it, and, and you'll be a good Christian by the end. Um, and I think that that's a completely wrong way of looking at the Christian life, uh, because that's just not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible does give us rules, for sure. It does give us instructions, for sure. But to see those things as the sum total of the Christian life is to miss the whole point, I think, of the gospel, which is that Jesus is actually the one who came and obeyed the rules for us and, and in, then enables us by his Holy Spirit to do that, flowing out of that grace that he gives us. Um, and so I want to just push on this because I think a lot of us come from backgrounds that, that maybe are more legalistic or maybe are more uh, about the rules. And we need to hear again and again that the Christian life is not just something that's hard to do, but we can get better at it with practice. In fact, the Christian life is impossible to do. Uh, it's impossible to do unless we have help. And that's where we need to look at. We need to rea- see the reality of that, that without Jesus giving us what we need. We can't be Christians at all. And yeah, we can jump through hoops. We can go through a lot of things, but we can't be followers of Jesus without Jesus's help. And that's one thing we're starting to see in this section of Psalm 119. Um, We're seeing a desperate plea from King David in these words for help. Um, And he's going to the only source of help that he has which is God. And, and our help comes from this God who not just uh, assigns things for us to do, but actually draws near to us that we can cry out to and we'll, we'll know that he'll answer us. And that's really what we're seeing. So, so in these two sections, 145 through basically 150 is just going to be a repetitive asking for help, asking for help, kind of thing. And then from 51, 151 through the rest of the, the psalm or this section of the psalm is going to be, okay, how does God answer that prayer and what does he do in that? And then what we're going to do is we're going to pivot to the New Testament and 
Uh, There's a passage in John chapter 5 that we're going to look at in some depth today uh, where we actually see the things we're seeing in Psalm 119 uh, play out in Jesus' own life and and his interaction with somebody. So let's work through Psalm 119 first. Uh, Let's get through this and and then we'll jump over to John 5. So if you want to get ready for that, you can. But um, here's what it says, 145 to 150. It says, with my whole heart, I cry. Answer me, O Lord. So, so he's crying out for God to answer his prayer. It says, I will keep your statutes. Verse 146, I call to you, save me. Then notice this. After he says, save me, he says, that or so that I may observe your testimonies. Now, that's vital, right? Because this is how we we need to understand our obedience flows out of the salvation that God offers us, not the other way around. Our salvation doesn't, uh, yeah, our works don't lead us to salvation. Our salvation leads us to works that are honoring to Christ. And so you see that direct connection here. I call to you, save me. That's what he's calling out for, so that I might observe your testimonies. That, that observance of what God calls him to be cannot happen unless God saves him. And then verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. So you see the re- repetition here, right? You, you, you've, every verse virtually in this section has uh, something that he's crying out to God for. He's crying out to God to answer him in verse 145. He's crying out to God to save him in verse 146. He's crying out for help in 147. In 148, he's just acknowledging that he's awake before the watches of the night and he's meditating on the promise of God. And then he says in 149, hear my voice, listen to me, hear what I'm saying according to your steadfast love. Because you love me, Lord, I know you'll hear me. I know you'll listen to me. And, and so... We're seeing this over and over again. Basically, this, this psalmist, King David, most likely wrote these words. What he's saying here is, I cannot do anything for myself. I need you, God, to step in and do this for me. I need your help. The, the life that God calls us to live cannot be lived without God's help. We need to hear that. We need to believe that. Because otherwise, this whole thing becomes about what we do and how we perform, and, and how, how well we can check the boxes and jump through the hoops and do the whole thing. And that's not the Christian message. The Christian message is that God comes in and helps us when we are helpless, and then enables us by his grace to do the things that we're called to do. That's always the pattern in the scriptures. God's grace enters first, and then our love for him grows which then leads to doing the things he wants us to do. Because, not because we have to, but because we get to out of love for him. As our love for Jesus grows, so do our works for him. Right? It's, it's an overflow of grace. 
And so we're seeing this, this cry for help, this cry for salvation, this crying out for God to hear him and give him life. That's the first part. Now, the second part of this psalm uh, it is basically King David's expression of how God has actually answered these prayers, right? Because God is close to us. He's near to us. He doesn't pull back from us. We can have confidence that he hears our cries for help and that he will actually give us help. So let's look at it. Verse 151 it says, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. So he's acknowledging right here that the whole hope he has in God is that God is close to him. He's near. And I think fundamentally the message of the Bible is the message of a God who created all things, drawing near to his people. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. right? God meets his people where they are. We see it famously in the Garden of Eden. God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Every day they'd have a, a, a nice little hike through the Garden of Eden with, with God. That's an amazing thing, right? From the very beginning, this is how God intended to be with his people. For them and uh, for us and him to be in complete total union together and to be in this thing together and to have his nearness with us. Well, then what happens, right? Sin separates us from God. We rebelled. Our representatives, Adam and Eve, they sinned and they plunged all of us into, into death and separation from God. And so that separation had to be remedied by God himself drawing near to his people. And so what does he do? In Genesis, he, he meets this guy, Abraham, and God initiates a covenant with him. And, and then he comes down to this guy named Moses and says, hey, you're going to go rescue my people out of Egypt. And then as they're leaving Egypt, what does he do? He meets them in this pillar of smoke or this pillar of fire, depending on the time of day. And he's protecting them and leading them with his presence. And then he gives them a tabernacle to build where he can meet with his people pr tangibly, pr practically in their lives. We're seeing this over and over and over again. God draws near to his people. He doesn't pull back. He doesn't remove himself. He, in fact, continues to go close. And David here is writing these words, knowing that's the character of God, that you are near, O Lord. You're near. And that is our hope. That is our help, that God would not be pulled back from us, but that he would actually pull near to us. And the fact is that the deeper we go in in our rebellion, the more God comes in to pull us out and rescue us. It's a beautiful thing. We're going to see how this is fulfilled in Jesus ultimately, but we're just looking at the, the text in front of us for the moment. So he says, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Now look at verse, uh, we'll, we'll look at verse 153 just real quick. We're, we're going to hop around a little bit in the rest of this, but look. 153 says, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. So, so the first way God answers the cry of David's heart in this psalm is he's drawing near. He draws near. He's there. He's close. The second thing that he says is you look, God looks on our affliction and he delivers us. So here's how I would say that. God sees us, 
and he saves us. Look on my affliction and deliver me. Look, deliver, see, save. That's what's happening. Right? And so we see this God who is near to us, who sees us in our suffering and saves us in the midst of it. Look at verse 153, uh, excuse me, 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Here we see two more verbs. We see pleading and redeeming. We see God entering into our messiness, our sinfulness, our brokenness by drawing near, looking, seeing, and saving. And then it says, plead my cause. What's this, what is he asking for here? He's asking for God to defend him. This is courtroom language. This is language of, okay, I need a defense attorney and God, you got to be my defense here. You need to plead my cause. What's interesting is, is that in the courtroom of God, he's the judge, he's the prosecutor, and he's the defense attorney. He's everything for us, right? And he, through Christ, shields us from the justice that we actually deserve, which is an amazing thing. He, we're going to touch more on this as we get into the New Testament, but he, said, he asked God to plead his cause and redeem him. So pleading and redeeming. Redeeming is to set someone free, to, to loose, loosen the chains and let somebody be in freedom. He says, give me life according to your promise. One more that we'll look at before we turn to John 5, um, verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. The, the fourth way in this text that we see God meeting us in our cries for help is in extending to us mercy because we're sinners and we need mercy. And through that mercy, he gives us life. He gives us a new life, a new way to live. And we're seeing these things, the nearness of God, the seeing and saving of God, the pleading and redeeming of God, the extending mercy and giving us a new life. These things all happen as we acknowledge our need for him and that we cannot do it on our own, that we just need him. We need him to do these things in us. Otherwise, we're hopeless and helpless. And like I've said, almost every time we've, we've been through these passages, I've, I've talked about how these things are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, right? This is a Old Testament understanding of God's nature, character, his work, and that is true, but it's fulfilled or even more fleshed out in the person of Christ. And we need to get to him because without understanding that Jesus is actually the one who does all these things for us, we're not going to get to the right the right place. And so we need to turn uh, to John, to the gospel of John. And the first thing I want to do before we get to John 5 is you can get there, but I'll, I'll just read one verse from uh, the beginning of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14 shows us the nearness of God in the person of Christ, right? That's the first thing we saw in Psalm 119, that God is near to us, O Lord. You're near to us, but we see that Jesus is actually the one who draws near to us uh, ultimately. In verse 14, it says, And the Word, and the Word is a reference to Jesus in this passage, 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the very eternal God, became flesh, became a human being, took on our bodily form, became a real man. The very God who created the world became one of his creatures and dwelt among us. You can't, God can't get closer to us than this, right? It's like God became one of us. That's an astounding thing. And God has done this for us in Jesus. And so all of John's gospel is showing us how this God who became one of his people to redeem them and save them and help them played out in, in these things, ultimately to his death on the cross, right? And so we're seeing this in John at the very beginning, that God is near. He dwells among us. He's living among us in Christ. And then, of course, we, uh, we'll, we'll see how this plays out in John 5. So if you want to turn there, we're going to spend some time here. We're going to look at verse 1 through 18. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a story. It's going to take a little work to get through, um, but, but it's, it's really good. I hope... As I worked through this passage, I just started to see Jesus actually embodying all the things that King David affirms in Psalm 119 about God's nature and character. It was really astounding, actually. I, I came to this passage originally thinking, oh yeah, this will be really good to highlight this one part. And then as I started to read it, I'm like, oh no, that's like all the parts. That's really cool. So, so we get to hang out here and see this. I hope, hope it's helpful. It's been helpful for me. Um, so look at verse 1 here. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these, under these colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All right, let's stop there for a minute because this is setting up the scene. But if you're looking at your paper Bible, or maybe it's on this one too, uh, I don't know if it has the verse numbers on there, but you'll notice uh, if you're reading a modern translation, an NIV, an ESV, uh, NLT, any of those, uh, it skips from verse 3 to verse 5. And where's verse 4, if you're paying attention to that? I just want to address this because uh, there's a reason for this, and, uh, and, and I just I don't want to take a ton of time on this technicality thing because it's not super, super important. But uh, for those of you who know or are one of these King James-only people, uh, this is gonna this is gonna burn your you know burn you a little bit because you're gonna go see these modern translations take out verses from the Bible. Uh, that's not what's happening actually. Uh, basically, what's happening is is that the King James was was translated in the 1600s and they were working off of manuscripts that were actually ironically much newer than the manuscripts that the newer translations have at their disposal. And so what's happened is is that there are some cases where a, uh, a, a verse was perhaps added into these newer manuscripts 
probably to explain some context that were not actually in the earlier manuscripts, so they probably weren't in the original text. And so what's happened is, is that the ESV and the NIV and these, what they'll do is they'll put the verses that are not in the oldest manuscripts that we have in the footnotes. And so you can still read it. They just don't put it into the text because it probably wasn't originally in the text. And so, you know, the King James translators were doing the best with what they had, but we've discovered a lot more manuscripts since the 1600s, and we don't have some of these verses in those. So we got to take it for what it is. But, but look at what, if, I'll just read it in my footnote here. Here's what verse 4 would have said, if you, or if you have a King James, uh, you will see this in your passage. But it says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So again, this is probably a case where a scribe at some point in time who was copying these things down was like, you know what, we need some explanation here because this is confusing. And so they explained what's happening. The context of this story is all of these sick people are around this pool because once in a while, this pool would start to swirl. And when that pool would start to swirl, the first guy in the pool got healed. First guy or gal in the pool, they got healed. And that's the context here. And that's an interesting thing, but it probably wasn't originally in John's gospel. So they put it in the footnotes now. Okay, let's get away from that rabbit trail. Uh, Verse five, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? All right, let's look at this. So we've already established that Jesus Christ is God who's drawn near to us in becoming a man, right? That, that was clear in the beginning of John's gospel. The second thing we saw in, John, in Psalm 119 is that Jesus sees us and saves us. And that's what we're seeing happen here, right? Jesus shows up to this pool and he, uh, hey, boys, boys, Silas, stop talking, okay? You're just, you are just throwing me off, bro, okay? Love you, buddy. Gotta stop. That's my son. I can yell at my son. So can't yell at your sons, but I can yell at mine. Okay, so he's like, one, so one man was there. He's been an invalid for 38 years. He's been unable to walk for 38 years. Was this his whole life? Probably, if not much of his life. He is just completely uh, hopeless, and he's sitting by this pool, hoping that he can get into the pool and be healed. That's where he's at. And Jesus, look at this. It says, verse 6, when Jesus saw him, when Jesus saw him, Jesus looks on this man And Charles Spurgeon helpfully says this about this verse. He says, it does not say when when the man saw Jesus. It doesn't say that. It does not say when the man saw Jesus. It says when Jesus saw him. And this text is going to make it clear that this man didn't even know who Jesus was. We're going to see that as we get through the text. Jesus isn't even known by this guy. This guy probably has never even heard about 
the power and love of Jesus. He's not looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for him. This takes us back to what David says in Psalm 119. Look on my affliction and deliver me. God, look at where I'm at. Look at my suffering and deliver me. This is what Jesus is doing. He shows up at this pool and he sees this man. He came to the world to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. And look at what verse 6 goes on to say. At the very end it says, He said to him, Do you want to be healed? What a, what a strange question, right? Like, of course the guy wants to be healed, right? What, do you want to be healed is what Jesus asked him. Now, why is he asking this question? Depends on how we look at it or how cynical we are, but uh, this might sound a little accusatory, right? Like Jesus is suggesting, do you even really want to be healed? I mean, look at how pathetic you are. You're sitting here by this pool. You can't even get yourself into a pool, like, how, how pathetic? Do you even want this? Are you even trying? Isn't that what we would do? <laughs> I mean, that's what we do all the time to people who struggle with, with sin. Don't, don't you even want to try to be better? Like, we just accuse people of being lazy or being bad at what they do. And that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't accusing this man of anything. What he's doing is he's asking the question, to make this man think about what he needs, what he truly needs. And, and he says, he asked the question, do you want to be healed, to get this guy thinking. It's not because Jesus doesn't know that he wants to be healed, and it's not because he's accusing him of being lazy or pathetic or something. It's, it's to get him to acknowledge that he needs saving and help. And it's the same thing that God does in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid. And God comes down into the garden and he says, hey, where are you? Did he ask them that question because he didn't know where they were? Of course not. Of course he knew where they were. He's God. He asked them that question to make them admit where they are. God's using that, that question. Jesus is using this question, do you want to be healed to get, him, to get this man to acknowledge he needs him? Let's keep reading. So we'll see what the man says. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. You see how confused we'd be if we didn't have that little footnote in verse 4? That's like, what are you talking, what? Out, out of nowhere, like, what's this doing? Um, but here's what the sick man says. He doesn't actually answer the question directly. Remember, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't have a clue that Jesus can do anything for him. He's just talking to a guy as far as he knows. And so what does he do? He just acknowledges the problem. This isn't a bad thing. He's acknowledging his predicament. He's acknowledging his helplessness. What he says is, Sir, I don't have anyone to put me into the pool. So when that water gets stirred up and I have the chance to be healed, someone always gets there before me. 
Remember, he can't walk. He, can't, he can hardly move. He may, who knows what his full disability is, but he's got, he can't, he's not mobile without anyone's help. And so he tries and he fails because he doesn't have anyone to help him. And so he acknowledges his need. He doesn't have a clue that Jesus can do anything for him, but he's explaining the situation. The man explains his struggle, that he's been sitting in this space for years and has never been able to get into the pool because he doesn't have anyone to help him. So look at what happens next. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take, your, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So this is, this is important. Jesus doesn't say, Okay, get, all right, buddy. Next time that pool is swirled up, I'm going to put you in the pool. He just bypasses the pool because the pool is not the point, right? This is a, this is, I don't even know if this is legitimate. Like, to be honest, I have no clue. Was this actually something that was happening and was actually helping people? Or are these just a bunch of desperate people who believe a superstition? I don't know. It's hard to say, right? It's hard to say what's what. Um, I'm not saying that God couldn't have done this for his people. He absolutely could have. He may have uh, done this as a grace to people in a time when they had no medical care to, to give people the chance to be healed. It may very well have been. But Jesus doesn't use the pool to heal the guy because the pool's not the point. Jesus tells, tells him to get up and walk. And then he does because God doesn't need any kind of intermediary to do his work. He heals and works just by his own power, by his ability to say it, and it's done. What we're seeing here is that Jesus looks at this man, and he saves this man from his predicament, his struggle, his suffering, because that's what Jesus came to do, to seek and to save the lost. And man, we could just stop there and go, this is great. This is a wonderful thing. And actually, that was my intention to just stop at that spot in the, in the passage um, and then go to some other passages to talk about the rest. But as we look at the rest of this passage, we actually start to see some amazing things that we're seeing in Psalm 119. The next section of Psalm 119 is verse 154 which is that he's asking God to plead his case and redeem him. Plead my cause and redeem him. So let's, let's keep reading in, uh, into verse 9, into verse 10. It says, Now, <clears throat> that day was the Sabbath. All right, so now this is a, this is a clue that this is not going to be good. This is not going to turn out well, right? Because we, we read the gospel enough to go, okay, Great. Jesus did something on the Sabbath again, and now they're going to get on his case about it. And that's exactly what happens. And so, verse 10, the Jews, the, the Pharisees here, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this, but I just you know, you just kind of want to throat punch these guys. Like, this is just so ridiculous. 
here's this guy who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And they knew it. They, they weren't ignorant of that. They knew it. But because he was healed on the Sabbath and Jesus told him to pick up his bed and walk, he carried his bed and carrying something on the Sabbath broke the law. Their law, their version of the law, right? And, and that's what's happening. And so now they're getting on this man's case and going, hey, you know, it's great that you couldn't walk for most of your life, uh, but, you know, now that you carried the mat on the Sabbath, now you're in trouble. It's just nuts. This is what legalism is, you guys. By definition, it's ridiculous and it's crushing. Let's run from it. We don't want to be these guys. So look at what happens. This is amazing. I actually really love this. Verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, we might read this and go, okay, he's just passing the blame on to Jesus. And he is, right? Like, that's exactly what he's doing. And that's the point. We all have to pass the blame on to Jesus. Isn't that the gospel? Like, isn't that the gospel? That Jesus pleads our case by taking our place. And so what this man is doing, he doesn't even know what he's doing, but he, he's doing the right thing, regardless of knowing it or not. What he does is his, here's my defense. I broke the law, but I did it because he told me to. This guy told me to do it. He's the one that should be blamed. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us on the cross. We point to the cross and we go, it's not my sin. Jesus took that sin. You can't hold that against me. Jesus took that away from me. That's the gospel, that we have a God who would take our place and stand guilty in the, our shoes. And, and Jesus didn't take, the mat, take up the mat and walk, but this man did, and yet he could still plead ignorance, not ignorance, but plead innocence because Jesus told him to do it. And this is just a, pre, a precursor, a prototype of what Jesus would ultimately do for us in pleading for us and redeeming us by his death on the cross, taking our place so that when we are truly condemned, we can look at God and Jesus and go, I'm not condemned. He's condemned for me. It's that man. That man took my sin. That man took my guilt. The, the song before the throne of God above highlights this, and there's a verse in this song. We'll sing it after the sermon at some point here. And it says that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. What do we do when we stand accused of being condemned because of our sin? We point to Jesus and say, no, no, he's the one. He took my sin. This man does that. He doesn't even know what he's doing. And I think that's just amazing. He says, this man, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who he was. 
He still doesn't know who Jesus is because Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Okay. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Jesus seeks out this guy again and finds him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because they were, that he was... Uh, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what we're seeing in this last section, this last part of the story, is that Jesus finds this man in the temple after some of the dust is settled. And what does he say to him? He says, see, you are well. There's an extension of mercy on this man's life. And then he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. There's a call to a new life. Mercy leads to newness of life. And he says, you've been, you've been made well, so now live like you've been made well. Be transformed because of the mercy I've extended to you. This is what Jesus does for this man. And what we're seeing in the prayer of King David is what we're seeing fulfilled in the person of Christ for every single one of us. That God comes near to us, that he sees and saves us, that he pleads our cause, he stands in our place, he takes our condemnation, and he redeems us through that act of sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, and then he extends his mercy to us so that we can live in a new way. This is the gospel at work being unpacked in this, in this passage, and it's an amazing thing. So here's the question. Do you want to have a fruitful Christian life? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to have a life that honors the Lord Jesus? Jesus makes it clear that we cannot do any of those things without his intervening grace and his help to get there. He says in, later on in John, John 15, 4 and 5, he uses an analogy of branches and a vine. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. But what he says in this is that we, can bear, we cannot bear fruit if we are not connected to the vine. And then he goes to, so far as to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot do anything without Jesus, and neither can I. We need his help. We need him to draw near to us. We need him to see us and save us. We need him to take our place. All these things, and all we need to do in response to that is to come to him for his help and say to him, God, I can't do it. I can't do it no matter how hard I try. Would you do it for me? Would you work it in me? Would you change my heart? Andrew Murray, 
uh, pastor from many, many years ago, wrote a little book called Abide in Christ. And here's what he says. He's writing about this verse in John 15. And he says, Without the vine, the branch can do nothing. To the vine, the branch owes its right of place in the vineyard and its fruitfulness. And so the Lord says, without me, you can do nothing. The believer can every day be pleasing to God only in that he does what he does through the power of Christ dwelling in him. The daily inflowing of the life sap of the Holy Spirit is his only power to bring forth fruit. He lives alone in Jesus and is for each moment dependent on Jesus alone. We're dependent on Jesus. We have no other recourse and no other help. We need to go to him and see him change us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for what you've um, said today, what you've shown us in, in Jesus today. We pray uh, that our hearts would be drawn in however it is that we need to be drawn in, and that you would help us. God, we confess absolutely from this passage that we have no dependence, uh, independence. We have only dependence on you. And so we pray that our Christian life would be given to you, that our, that our desires to see change and transformation in our, in our lives would only come through you, that we would give up all the, all the attempts and all the hopes of just doing it on our own, and that we would lean on you for your grace and your help. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.